Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke, the third chapter. I'll be reading the first 14 verses. Uh, As we come to this passage, let us first join together in prayer. Gracious God, because you are God, it is your word and your word alone that is life for us. And because you are gracious, we trust that even now you will speak to us. We are here, O God, we are listening. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let us listen now for God's word for us. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Traconiatus, and Licinius ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. So one of the things I notice in this story, particularly this year, since it's just you and me doing this season of Advent together, well, I notice how many people came out to hear John. 
Several times the text mentioned there were crowds. There were crowds upon crowds that came out to hear John the Baptist. So why would folks trek out into the wilderness to hear a bug-eating prophet who wears clothes that are more out of date than leisure suits? I think it was his message. Oh, it sounds harsh, I know. But what John, John had a one-point sermon. Love is coming. We need to be ready. Repent. Why would people be hungry to repent? The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It literally means to turn and go in a different direction, to, to change, to strike out in a new way. But personal change is hard, and we seldom we seldom want to hear the need for it from someone else. So it's surprising that John was so popular. It sounds like every time John looks at us, all he sees is what's gone wrong with us. You better shape up here. You better fix that. God's not going to tolerate this. But it's actually more complicated than that. My friend Scott, he preaches in New York City. He's one of the finest preachers I know, and he's a generous friend. He tells the story of when he was dating his now wife, Amy. He was visiting her in the Twin Cities, and Amy, by coincidentally, she, she lived in an apartment complex that, that was populated largely by retirees. Scott is an excellent cook, and he was, he was making some homemade pizza that they could enjoy for dinner, in the process, he set something on fire, or smoke at least, enough smoke to sound the smoke alarm in the apartment. Uh, well, an elderly neighbor heard the alarm and came and began banging on the door and hollering through to Scott that the smoke alarm was going off in the event that he wasn't aware of that himself in the apartment. He opened the door to tell her, look, it's all right. It's not a fire. It's just pizza. It's just pizza. In the event of opening the door, though, smoke bellowed out of the apartment into the hallway, which set the fire alarm for the whole building off. And pretty soon, Scott found himself heading out into a Minneapolis January afternoon trying to assure people, you, you don't have to leave the building. It's just pizza. There's no fire. It's just pizza. But they were undeterred. He said as he stood outside with, this, with the octogenarians there, and they waited for the firefighters to give the all clear, he could hear some of them muttering, I heard it's just pizza. It's not really a fire. It's just pizza. But here's the point. If you have ever heard the sound of the fire alarm and didn't know why, your priorities get pretty clear very quickly. You know what matters most. As Tom Long has said, the key to the deadbolt is much more valuable than the art on the wall, even if it's a Rembrandt. I think John hit a world that had forgotten what matters, like a smoke alarm. And when people realized what this metanoia man had to say, they were drawn to him like waves to the shore. He told them love is on the way. We need to get ready. We need to remember what matters most. We have forgotten what really matters. 
We need to repent. Now, I know repent, it's a church word. It almost never bubbles up in conversation over coffee, but think of it this way. Repentance, to turn around, it, it means we can change. It means things can be different. It, it means we don't have to be defined by the brokenness of some yesterday. It means things can change. It means we can change. Cynicism is the cultural voice that, that tries to insist that the way things are is the way things ought to be and will always be. Repentance is the antidote to cynicism. John and Jesus after him would never have called us to repent unless they believed that we could. And if I understand the text, both John and Jesus after him believed in a greater good that could emerge from us because they already paid attention to the good that was in us. What do you think John would say to us these days? Probably the same thing he talked about back then. He said, look, here's what matters. Share with one another. Don't abuse your power. Be fair with one another. Simply put, he said we need to learn how to live with one another, how to live for one another. That's it, simply put, but it's not simple. In Mark Dunkelman's book, The Vanishing Neighbor, he asserts that in recent decades in America, our cynicism has grown so strong that we are losing confidence in the basic goodwill of the stranger. That, that we encounter with one another with a posture of suspicion. When I was a kid, Mr. Whitman delivered the mail and, and he came to our street driving this three-wheeled mail cart. Do you, do you remember? Do you remember those? You're old enough to remember those? Mr. Whitman would start at the top of the hill on Churchill Drive, and my best friend and neighbor, Danny Martin, and I, we would walk with him as he walked down to the end of the street and back up to his mail cart as he came by the other side of the street. He called us his mail delivery associates. When he had finished our street and returned to his mail cart, he would let Danny Martin stand on one side and I stood on the other side and we held on the handles in the door while he slowly drove his mail cart from the top of the hill down and around the corner to the end of our street and then he let us off. And yes, this actually qualified as entertainment in my childhood. There are about a bazillion good reasons that something like that would never happen today. But it also illustrates what Dunkelman is talking about. It's a loss of confidence in the basic goodwill of one another. We are quick to suspicion. In John Irving's novel, A Prayer for Owen Meany, Johnny Wheelwright is Owen's best friend. And in kind of an aside, Johnny, he reflects on 
the importance of living in his small town of Graves Inn. He says this, small towns are places where you grow up with the peculiar and you live next to the strange and the unlikely for so long that everything and everyone becomes commonplace. I think that's what John was teaching us. We need to learn that everyone belongs. You don't have to be perfect to repent. You don't have to be perfect. Actually, maybe the best place for repentance to start is by recognizing that an imperfect life is still lovable. Like a smoke alarm, John said, pay attention to what really matters. Neither John nor Jesus who came after him would call us to repent unless they believed that we could, and they believed that a greater good could emerge from us because they paid attention to the good that was already in us. There are too many people who pass their time and some who even make their living by pointing out everything that is wrong with everybody else. They present themselves as prophets, but they're not. What needs to be declared loud and clear these days is that an imperfect life is still lovable. That's prophetic, and that takes courage. And if I understand it, that's why all kinds of people drug their imperfect lives out to the wilderness to hear John proclaim repentance and let the waters of baptism wash away the brokenness of their yesterdays because he and the one who followed him had confidence in the greater good that could emerge from us. And they did because they paid attention to the good that was already in us. It was a season in my life when I dabbled at woodworking. I built furniture in a very amateur fashion because Carol is very gracious. There's a butler table and some bookshelves that are in our living room. There's a changing table upstairs that I made when the kids were born. There's a pencil post bed in the bedroom that was fun to make. But everything, every one of those pieces have flaws. There's that place where the router jumped in the butler table. There's a place in the bed where the, where the wood didn't join just as I intended. And I see those flaws every time I look at any of those pieces. Over Thanksgiving, our daughter Sarah, she asked, if she could have a dresser I made that was upstairs, I said, oh, darling, there's that problem with the drawers. She said, I know that, but I just love how it looks. I'd like it. And she does, flaws and all. We are all broken. There's not a one of us that's perfect. It doesn't take any of us any time at all to come up with the list of our failings and our flaws. So the call to repent, the call to grow to greater good, it is needed. It is important. But if I understand it, 
Maybe the first step is to recognize you're not repenting to be loved. Uh, An imperfect life is still lovable. You are enough. I think that's what John was teaching. People went to him because they trusted him. They trusted John and Jesus who came after him when they said, repent. There is a greater good that can emerge in you. They trusted that because they could also tell John and the one who came after were paying attention to the good that they saw in them already. So on the second Sunday of Advent, trust that an imperfect life is still lovable. You are enough. Rest in that. And then see what good might emerge in you tomorrow. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.